And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So when they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. May God reveal light and life through his word by his spirit so that we may believe and have eternal life. You may be seated. Evangelism is a tender topic. There's a lot of sensitivity and confusion around it. I think many of us feel guilty for not evangelizing perhaps as often as we ought. Uh, some of us see it only as the sort of thing that the church should be doing it. Vocational ministers are the people who should be evangelizing. And so we, we rely on the church to provide evangelistic programs and opportunities for us to engage in, in evangelism instead of doing it on our own. Uh, and some of us might think we simply don't know enough to share the gospel. And so there's some degree of sensitivity around it. But one of the takeaways that I hope we can gather from studying together in John's gospel over the coming months is this. Bearing witness to the gospel is a calling that we each have. Bearing witness to the gospel is a calling we each have. It's an effort of the church, not just an organization, but as individual members. So I like the way that Max Stiles defines evangelism. He puts it this way. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. So teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel does provide information. It conveys information. Yes, of course, absolutely. But more importantly, it encourages a decision or a change of heart. And it is the task of the whole church. We gather together to worship and then we scatter back out into the world as representatives of Christ and his gospel, looking for spirit-led opportunities to share this gospel, this good news of life and light with others. It's intimidating to share the gospel. It is. Perhaps right, right now, more than it has been in times past, it seems like during just my lifetime, Christianity has gone from a relationship with the broader culture that was largely positive to then going a bit neutral 
and then actually becoming quite negative. It's gone from positive to neutral to negative. Pretty quickly, it appears to me, at least during my lifetime, the tables have turned to the point that it can be intimidating to share our faith out of fear of being misunderstood or of being shunned or mistreated in some way. But our passage this morning provides us with a great example of what it means to evangelize. We don't need to be aggressive. We don't need to be calculating. We just need to tell the truth and let the Word and the Spirit do the work. So the big idea from this section, this first section of the narrative of John's Gospel is this. Use your life to direct attention to the devotion of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Use your life to direct attention to the devotion of the Lamb of God, Jesus. And we'll look at this passage in two sections. First, the ideal witness redirects attention to Jesus, and then the ideal witness reports the identity of Jesus. So just two sections. Before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are dependent upon you, and we know that you bear witness by your word and by your spirit to the identity of Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would trust and that would rest in what you have provided for us in and through Jesus. Would you be an encouragement to us of the, the veracity of your gospel and the good news that it is to us and to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the ideal witness redirects attention to Jesus. Now we'll look at this in verses 19 through 28. This entire gospel is built around, structured around people reacting to and responding to Jesus as they are confronted with him, as they see him. They see his miraculous signs, they hear his teaching, they have personal interactions with him, and some go away confused. Some go away angry. Others still go away intrigued. Others believe that he is the Christ, and they go away with great joy. Some reject him, others receive him. And so as we're reading along, really all the way through John's gospel, we're seeing how others are responding when they're faced with this person of Christ, Jesus. And we have to remember, as we're reading along, that we have information that the, the folks that we're reading about do not have access to. We know things that these people don't know because we've read verses 1 through 18. All right, we can assume that we know this. The people in the stories, these narratives of the life of Christ, don't know that. We have the key. We have the answer key right up front. We get to watch and to see how this plays out. People trying to discover what we have already been taught and told. That this man, Jesus, is God. Not simply God-like, not simply God-ish, but he is truly God. That he existed eternally with the Father. That all things were made through him. And that he became flesh to reveal the glory of God the Father to display the grace and fidelity of God, to bring the revelation of salvation, life, and light. And there's one individual in John's gospel who is best positioned 
who is most poised to recognize Jesus for who he truly is, and that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes up a couple of times in those first 18 verses in that prologue of John's gospel. And verse 6 says that John was sent from God to bear witness about who Jesus is. So he was commissioned by God himself to bear witness about the identity of Jesus. He's got it right. And as that ideal witness, John is coming humbly to prepare the way for people to receive the revelation of God's Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. And so at every turn, he is redirecting attention away from himself, as John the Baptist, and to Jesus. So notice how he's using both his words and his actions to point to Jesus. First, we'll just consider his words in verses 19 through 22. A, John's words point to Jesus. I'll read those verses back into our hearing. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Mark's gospel describes John the Baptist in a little more detail than we're able to get here in John's gospel. We know that John the Baptist was, he wore a, a, a jacket or a cloak of camel's hair, that he had a leather belt that he wore around his waist, that he ate locusts and wild honey. And so he was a pretty unique individual. You can picture John sort of rambling around in the countryside, preaching out in public, calling for repentance and faith. The end is near, repent, be baptized. It's kind of a unique figure, stands out. And many were drawn to him. Many were drawn to his message of repentance, and they were being baptized by John, whom we know as the Baptist. There were crowds all over Judea coming to hear John, his message of repentance and faith, and to be baptized by him. See, at the time, there was a common expectation in the first century that this Messiah, who had been so long promised, would be coming soon. And there were, at at this point already, many false witnesses, many false messiahs who had come to pretend to be Christ that kept popping up. And so John is gaining a following, and at the same time, he's gaining attention from the religious leaders. We need to keep an eye on what's going on over here. So the Jewish leaders send priests, send Levites to interview John to find out what his deal is, who is this guy. And so they asked him if he's three different people. You see that in the text. They asked him, are you Christ? Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? And each time he denies it. Well, why those three? Why does he ask about those three? Well, the Old Testament gives him signs to watch out for in advance of the Messiah coming. Our English word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word that translates to anointed one. And our word Christ in English is simply the the version of the Greek word for the same thing. So Christ and Messiah really are speaking, referring to the same thing, and it's this, someone who is promised to come with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, anointed with the Holy Spirit. He would redeem humanity from their sin. He would save them. He would judge the nations. He would bring about God's kingdom on earth. This is who they were expecting. Well, John states very plainly, well, he is not that person. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. 
Okay. Well, then they ask him if he was Elijah. Why Elijah? Why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Well, if you recall, the prophet Malachi ended his work with a prediction about the coming day of the Lord. And before that coming day of the Lord came, he said he would send Elijah. So Malachi 4, 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Elijah was pretty much Israel's first prophet. He was uh, really, he stood out apart from the rest, some amazing miracles. You remember he calls down the fire from the sky against the prophets of Baal. He prays for rain that ends a drought. He brings a widow's son back to life. And then even Elijah's departure from this world was miraculous in and of itself, right? Elijah did not die, but was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind and chariot of fire. That's we get the recording of that in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so it left open this possibility for Elijah. There's this possibility in people's minds that he would reappear and he would continue his prophetic miraculous ministry. Well, not only that, but he actually dressed pretty much like John the Baptist. 2 Kings 1.18 says that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And so people would have seen this, so it looks, it looks an awful lot like John the Baptist is dressing, and they're making the connection. Maybe this is Elijah, but John shoots that down too. John the Baptist is not Elijah. That's what he confesses. And then they asked him if he was the prophet. The prophet. Moses prophesied that there would be someone who would be risen from within Israel who would speak on behalf of God. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this. This is Moses speaking. It says, Behold, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So by the first century, the Jews had developed this expectation that there would be a final prophet, a final prophet who would come in the lines of what Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy. This prophet would come to speak God's words on his behalf. So are, are you that guy, John? Are you the prophet? Well, no, John denies that too. And it's interesting to note, every time he denies it, his responses get even shorter. Like he's running out of patience. No, it's not me either. It would have been flattering, no doubt, to have somebody accuse you of being the Christ or of the returning of Elijah or of that great final prophet. But just notice that John was not tempted at all to claim any honor that did not belong to him. The humility of John the Baptist rings out in this section and really throughout as we read about him in John's gospel. Well, the priests and the Levites hear these responses, and they're like, well, we can't go back and tell the people that sent us who you're not. You're going to have to tell us who you are. Who are you? If you're not those three people, who are you? His response, all he's willing to say is he's, just a, he's a voice. I'm a voice. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is the word. John's just a voice. John, of course, is alluding to Isaiah chapter 40, our call to worship text. That's important. We'll come back to that in a moment's time. But for now, just notice what John the Baptist is doing here as an ideal witness. He's not claiming any honor for himself. He could have, though. We actually read some amazing things about John the Baptist. His birth was prophesied to his dad by angels. 
Jesus says there's nobody greater who's walking the face of the earth than him. He gets to baptize Jesus. He was sent by God to testify to the Messiah. Those are some impressive things. I don't think we would be too, uh, too wrong to understand if he responded to their question of who he is with those sort of noteworthy details. Who am I? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a few things about me. But every time he's redirecting attention away from himself, both with his words, his spoken words, and also with his actions. You can notice that John's actions point to Jesus in verses 24 through 28. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the priests and the Levites who had come to talk to John the Baptist would have been the ones who were responsible for the worship in the temple. John the Baptist was actually a Levite himself. His dad was a priest, Zechariah. But John was not serving in the temple. John's ministry was outside of the temple, outside of the authority of the, the, the Jewish community, as it were. Almost as he, had, he has his own authority that stands apart from the worship of the Jews. And so it might have made sense for him to do that if he wasn't such, like, if he was this important figure, if he was the Christ, if he was Elijah, if he was the prophet, well, that would make sense. But if you're none of those people, then who do you think you are out here baptizing people? Baptism itself was not an uncommon practice at the time. People would have given themselves ritual cleansing. It was not an uncommon thing. People would wash themselves. But John's doing something different. John is baptizing other people. That stands out. Who does he think he is to be baptizing other people? Well, he is the, he's the messenger who was sent by God to come to prepare the way for Jesus by calling for repentance. And that repentance takes on the sign of baptism. So baptism really is just a representation, a visible sign of repentance. And so John the Baptist really is showing up like an Old Testament prophet. And what do we learn about the Old Testament prophets? That they come to call out this holy remnant from within Israel, calling them out to return to the covenant faithfulness, anticipating this new and better covenant that's going to be coming, just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, just like Ezekiel, a new covenant that would call for a new birth, a new covenant that would bring new hearts, that would bring, that bring complete forgiveness of sin. Being included in that new covenant would require personal repentance. And so John the Baptist comes calling for it. So he's out there calling for repentance so that people would be prepared to see and to know and to recognize and believe in the Messiah who was going to establish that new covenant, preparing the way. But notice that even as John's actions are being explained, he's, he's diverting attention away from himself. Did you see this? Yeah, I baptize with water, but there's somebody else who's doing even greater things. Things you don't see, things you don't understand yet. You don't know him yet, but he's so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task to serve him. I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. 
Jesus was around at this point, so he was on the scene, but he hadn't really caught the attention of the religious leaders yet at this point. We read from John that he, his ministry would come after John's ministry. And we also read that he was in the world, but the world did not know him. Well, we're seeing this playing out in real time now. So John is presented in this section as an ideal witness, a model witness, if you will. He wasn't sent by God to speak about himself, but to speak about Jesus. And so he's using his own life to redirect attention away from himself and to Jesus. And so he's a model for us in that way. Now, I think we would all recognize that there are kind of goofy, awkward, clumsy ways to do this. Uh, One author named John Acuff came up with a term to describe that when he sort of shoehorned Jesus into conversations in weird ways. He calls it a Jesus juke. A Jesus juke. It's like when somebody turns a light conversation into something very serious and holy completely out of nowhere. Maybe you've been through that. Man, did you see the game last night? Booker was playing like an MVP. And like, well, Jesus is the MVP of my life. <laughs> so I don't. But hey, did you see that new Marvel movie? It's like, I was too busy marveling at the wonder of salvation. So I'm sure I missed it. Come on, man. Come on. Bringing Jesus out of nowhere into an unrelated conversation is not helpful. And it's usually just something that Christians do to each other to, to like make somebody else feel ashamed for not being as spiritual as you are. And the weird thing about it is it might seem like you're redirecting attention from yourself, but what you're doing is directing attention to yourself. <laughs> you're actually doing the exact opposite. It's a move of selfish ambition and vanity. It's a way to insert yourself into the conversation by bringing up Jesus into it. And that is not what the ideal witness should be aiming for. Now, I admit that I have got this easier than most of you uh, in some ways because, uh, because of my job. And so it's not too hard for me to start conversations about Jesus in a very natural way because as soon as I meet somebody at a neighborhood block party, uh, it's unavoidable. And I can tell pretty quick if somebody is repulsed by the fact that I'm a pastor or if they're intrigued or if they're indifferent It doesn't take too long to sort of feel it out. But I've got a built-in sort of natural on-ramp to these sorts of conversations. It's hard, however, for most people to find ways to start up conversations in a natural way about the gospel, about God or about sin or about Jesus or about faith or about eternity. So we need to pray for, and then we need to watch for, opportunities to do just that. The opportunities exist in natural ways, in a way that points attention away from you and towards the adoration of Jesus. And we're going to see a lot more about this as we go through John's gospel. I just want to be aware of these categories. We're going to see more examples of how to share the gospel in John's gospel. But for now, just be aware that John's presented here as an ideal model witness for us, who is redirecting attention from himself, and then he's reporting the identity of Jesus. Second, the ideal witness reports the identity of Jesus. So this is the second day. And that first day, John's responding to very direct questions about his identity, about his actions. And now, it's the next day, he sees Jesus coming towards him. He's out there preaching. 
He's starting to talk about who Jesus is as he sees him coming. And the first thing that he says is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, verses 29 through 30. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So this concept of a lamb is completely stacked with meaning, particularly for his Jewish audience. They would have been very familiar with the concept of a lamb. All sorts of Old Testament passages would have been popping up into their mind. Here's just a few. Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. They're going up to the mountain. They have everything for the sacrifice except for one thing. And Isaac asks the question, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And of course, Isaac was not sacrificed. God provided a ram to take his place. Moving on into Exodus chapter 12. Israel is about to be freed from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And they were instructed as households to take a lamb, to kill it, and then mark their homes with its blood, and then eat the meat. It was going to be a final meal that they were going to enjoy together in haste before the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt and kill the firstborn of every house that was not marked by that blood. So one thing that we need to know about John's gospel all the way through is this. Jesus is presented as the new lamb who marks a new exodus. Jesus is presented as the new lamb who marks a new exodus. In John 13, Jesus is eating that Passover meal in memory of the first Passover with his disciples. And what does he say? He's establishing this new covenant in his blood. He would offer his body, he would offer his blood as the lamb to bring his people out of the bondage that they were in. But this time it was not bondage to slavery in Egypt. This time it was going to be bondage to sin and death, a spiritual exodus, a spiritual exodus for all who would be willing to be covered by the blood of the lamb. The prophet Isaiah, later on, would anticipate this new exodus, and then he would connect it with this person called the Messiah, this anointed one who is going to come, a suffering servant, who is going to come from the line of David, who would be pierced for the sin and transgression of his people, and as a result, bring them healing. And so when John the Baptist connected himself with a voice, as he did moments ago, he's talking about Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 marks out the beginning of a brand new section in Isaiah that's talking about this new exodus, this new end times plan that God has for this coming servant. So John is connecting this new exodus with this lamb and saying, this is him. Now, I, don't I haven't been to Israel. I don't understand the geography. I've looked at it on Google Maps, seen some videos, but it looks like the geography of Israel is uh, rugged. A lot of mountains, a lot of valleys, hills and plains, rivers, seas. Well, Isaiah is using that picture of the geography of Israel as a metaphor. 
you can imagine what it must have been like to walk or ride an animal over all these valleys and through hills and around lakes and these rivers and stuff. And so Isaiah picks up on that difficulty of traveling through the Holy Land. He uses it in a metaphor. He says, imagine, if you will, that there is a straight path directly connected from God's people in exile into God's presence with God himself. There's no mountains, there's no valleys. It's just a direct shot. Every valley is lifted up, every mountain is brought low, the rough places are turned into a plain, the uneven ground is brought up to be level, and the glory of God would be revealed, and all flesh would see it together. This is what Isaiah was anticipating, and Jesus, according to John the Baptist, is fulfilling that prophecy, that Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the very revelation of the glory of God the Father. And so John's putting everyone on alert. This is the guy. This is the guy. I'm happy just when the I-17 is open on holidays when there's a, like a weekend when there's a holiday, I can get to church faster. I love that open road, but this, this open road. He is the way to the Father. This is the guy. This is the lamb. If you want to get to God, this is how you go. He's been sent by God. He would come to bear the burden of his people, sin, and reconcile them back to the Father by giving his life as a ransom. John also might have had an image of a victorious lamb in his mind when he saw Jesus coming on the scene. A victorious lamb that we read about in the book of Revelation who had conquered death and hell through his sacrificial death. We see that picture of a lamb here as well. There's so much that's packed into this phrase. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting. The first Passover takes away the sin of Israel. This Passover lamb takes away the sin of the world. Anyone who believes in him is given the right to be called a child of God. Well, how does John know? How does John know? How is he making all these connections and identifying Jesus as this lamb? Well, he explains it in the final verses in our passage. B. Jesus is the divinely revealed, spirit-anointed Son of God. Verses 31 to 34. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John says the reason that he even started baptizing with water is in order to reveal the identity of Jesus to Israel. We don't have it recorded for us in this particular gospel, but John had been, John baptized Jesus already at this point, in between what we had read previously and this section. And so at his baptism, Jesus' baptism, you recall we read in the other gospels, the Spirit descends on him from above like a dove, and it remained on him. It's not an actual physical dove, like a dove, it says. And he was identified as the Son of God by the voice of God. So we've got the Spirit of God, we've got the Father, 
identifying Jesus now as the Son of God. He is, he's, this is the Lamb. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. It's important to remember. He had nothing to repent of in the way that the others did who were baptized by John the Baptist, but it was fitting, according to Christ himself, it was fitting for him to be baptized as the sinless one, as though he was a sinner. And so Jesus went into the water of the Jordan as a dramatic representation of willingly taking on the pollution of sin. Jesus was drenched in the waters of the Jordan in order to take the sins that he picked up there, as it were, to the cross to bear them away. John knew that the Spirit would abide on God's servant king. John was expecting this. He was told this by God. After all, that's actually what it means to be the Messiah, right? It's the Spirit-anointed one. And this is how Isaiah spoke about it. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So John knew who Jesus was because he knew his Old Testament and because God had revealed it to him in order for him to bear testimony, to bear witness to the light. He saw and he heard God himself bear witness to that fact at the baptism. And so he's just recounting what he's seen and what he's heard. I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm just telling you what I heard. It's important to note that no one can baptize with the Holy Spirit but God himself. That's not a gift that humans are given. And then yet another clue that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. That he is the agent of this new exodus who would come to cleanse and restore God's people by the Spirit. We learn so much about who Jesus is in this passage. We've simply scratched the surface. We've learned about how to bear witness to who he is, to turn attention away from ourselves, to turn attention and focus on the adoration of the person of Jesus, of who he is, of what he came to do. And the message of the gospel really is about God. The message of the gospel is about God, who he is, what he requires. It is the message about sin. We stand under God's wrath. We need to be recognizing that. Recognize a need of repenting, spiritually being cleansed from our sin. The gospel is about Christ, who cannot be understood apart from his saving work as a lamb who takes away sin. If you've missed that identity of Jesus, then you've completely misunderstood who Jesus is. You cannot understand Jesus without understanding that he is the lamb who takes away the sin. And it's a call to repent. The gospel is a call to repent. It's about God, it's about sin, it's about Christ, and it's a call to repent and believe. Both of those are necessary. It's one of the reasons that we ask new members to explain the gospel in around 60 seconds when they join the church. How can you share something with somebody else that you don't know how to say? But once we get it, once we understand it, in its simplicity, we can be prepared to tell others. Accept John's testimony of the identity of Jesus, rest in John's testimony of the identity of Jesus, and then echo what you've seen and heard, humbly like John. God's gospel brings life through faith and repentance. Let's pray for boldness, pray for patience, pray for wisdom, for opportunities to use our lives to direct attention to the devotion of the Lamb of God. 
Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for our Lamb and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.